So we're uh, finishing up our monster series today by looking at another deep and profound theological and psychological work. I am referring to the children's book, There's No Such Thing as Dragons. And I hope you're starting to begin to see that some of the greatest wisdom you're ever going to find are in the books we've been reading to our kids for years and not realize that this is a book about Billy Bixby. And Billy Bixby woke up one day, and let me just get to the page, and it says, Billy Bixby was rather surprised when he woke up one morning and found a dragon in his room. It was a small dragon about the size of a kitten. Billy patted it on its head, made friends with the dragon, and the big dragon wagged its tail happily. Billy went downstairs to tell his mother, there's no such thing as dragons, said Billy's mother, and she said it like she meant it. And so Billy started to deny that the dragon was there. He went to his room and he dressed and tried to ignore it, but the dragon followed him downstairs, and now the dragon grew as they went to breakfast, and became bigger, it was almost now the size of a small dog. Every time Billy pointed it out to his mother, his mother simply said, there's no such thing as dragons. There's no such thing as dragons. And eventually the dragon started to become a nuisance. It ate all the food and crawled up on the table, which uh, wasn't allowed, but since there's no such thing as dragons, we couldn't correct the dragon. And and ultimately, uh, the dragon starts taking over. And the more the mother says, there's no such thing as dragons, the the, the more the dragon begins to grow. Pretty soon it, it is in the way and, and Billy is having trouble ignoring this dragon that's in his house and pretty soon it becomes enormous to the point that the mother has to start crawling in windows instead of using the front door. Eventually the mother has to do crazy things like clean around it and live around it, insisting through the entire book that there's no such thing as dragons. Eventually, it completely takes over the house. So the house you can't even live in. It's not a safe place. People won't come over, and and they're being driven out of their very house because the dragon grows. The more the mother says, there's no such thing as dragons. And eventually, the house is picked up, and it goes into the neighborhood, and it starts affecting the entire neighborhood. Just a children's story, right? And and, and the father is trying to help his family, and, and there's many pages to this a uh, wonderful story that there's no such thing as dragons. But eventually, after much chaos, uh, Billy finds courage. Uh, it says this. The mother asks a question. And by the way, this is just a really, really good question. How did this happen? Have you ever asked that question? How did this happen, Miss Bixby asked. It was the dragon, said Billy. There's no such thing, mother started to say. There is a dragon, Billy insisted, a very big dragon. And Billy patted the dragon on the head. The dragon wagged its tail happily. Then even faster than it had grown, the dragon started to get smaller. Soon it was kitty size. And eventually it started shrinking down. I don't mind dragons this side, said mother. Why did it have to grow so big? Why did it have to grow so big? I'm not sure, said Billy. I think it just wanted to be noticed. So just children's books, right? You know, the the thing about the series that we're in is, one, there's a lot of people who are, uh, God's messing with them, and a lot of people maybe a little miffed at me about that and uh, get in line. I mean, uh, just, uh, not really, I should be a better heart than that, I just don't. And, 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 In this series, a lot of stuff has been coming up. Now, let me just be real clear about something. I am not calling you a monster. But I'm saying that when you're in a place where you're not okay, 
When you're hungry, there's a, a need that's not being met. When you're, you're angry, there's something that's made you just see inside. When you're, you're, you're lonely and you're isolated and you haven't got God or people speaking into your life. And when you're tired, when you've gone too much, gone too far. When you've got unmanaged pain, when, when you've got, got patterns that you've learned from your childhood. There's a potential for that monster to take over and, and begin to define you. And it becomes uh, something that lives through you. And, and, and so, so, so you need to understand and we need to understand what we're like when we're not okay. And this last year, we've all been through a lot and there's just been a lot of monsters that have come to the surface. And so this is a series about self-awareness. Three big, big questions. What monster do you transform in? Do you become the angry monster? You become the withdrawn monster? You become the cynical monster? You become the selfish monster? You become the judgmental monster? Do you become the person who just, you know, uh, uh, throws themselves into work monster? Are you the person who finds compulsive behaviors, things that ordinarily are healthy, but they get out of control in your life because you use them to cope? Are you the, the monster that... that tries to do everything for everybody, but never takes care of themselves? What are you like when you're not okay? And if you're not able to answer that question, then you are incredibly vulnerable to that monster taking over your life. We've asked another question, what story or narrative? This is a big one we're going to be asking, not only this week, but in the next two message series. What story or narrative do we tell when we need to halt? When we're hungry, angry, lonely, or tired, we tell ourselves stories. And we can fool ourselves, okay, about the condition that we are actually in. And we can create a narrative about what happened and who we are and how we look and all these kinds of things. And, and we can fool everybody. We can fool nobody but ourselves. Uh, the third question is, are you feeding or starving the monster? Okay, so, so in your life, you are actually doing something to make your monster strong and grow. It's, it's getting bigger, or, or it's something that keeps it down to manageable size. You never really, in this life, kill the monster. Because part of what makes a monster is actually things that it's who you are, and, 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 and there's some good things about it. But, but if you don't have it uh, uh, starved or, or in proportion, it can get out of control, and it can take over your life. Now, now let me just say this. This is the message where I, I want to introduce you to, boy, uh, a, a, an ancient spiritual practice, an ancient spiritual practice that has more power to tame your monster, has more power to keep this thing in check. Uh, I want to introduce you to the spiritual practice that up until very recently was at the heart of Christian spiritual formation. And, and I should just warn you that when you bring this topic up in this modern age, it falls on not only indifference, but there's actually a hostility towards it. But if you don't learn this as a Christian, you really won't grow to become a very mature Christian. So, so we're going to learn that this, and we're going to talk about that in a minute. So it all begins with the power of confrontation, okay? You have to have your monsters confronted. Now, let me ask you a question. If God wanted to confront you about something in your life, could he do it? Oh, he's God, so he could like firebolt you or something like that, right? But are you an easy person for God to come to? For instance, could God the Father say something to you through his word? Not if you're not in it. Could God the Son say something about your life in comparison to the life he lived? Not if you don't think about the life of Christ and make your ambition to live the life of Christ, forgiving your enemies, turning the other cheek, that kind of stuff like that. Could the Holy Spirit convict you, challenge you, encourage you, comfort you? Not if you're not taking time to create the inner life of prayer that we've been talking about this entire fall. If God 
sent someone to you who loved you and, and wanted to say something to you, are you the kind of person that it's safe to say things to? Okay, uh, or, or maybe you're an angry person and the hardest, you know the quickest way to make an angry person angry? Point out their anger. Okay, um, 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 a person who's materialistic, you want to really get them upset? Point out their materialism. But, but we need people. Sometimes God will send people. Do you have the ability to be confronted by God because we all need to be? Now here's where, where we're at. We're at the story where we've been learning about David a great hero from the Old Testament, man after God's own heart, wrote bunches of the Bible, the Psalms. He loved God. He was a great warrior. He fought for the people. Well, he got established as king. Remember the story? We looked at it the last couple of weeks. And, and what happened was he started embracing entitlement. He started to feel like, I've worked harder. I deserve this. I'm better. I have the right to have what I have. And, and if they, we're going to talk about this in the next couple of series too. If there's anything that is the sickness of our age, it's entitlement. It's actually the Old Testament, the, the biblical concept of coveting, that, that I have the right to something, that, that I am entitled to this. Well, David starts getting entrenched in this, and, and so he decides, I'm no longer going to fight the Lord's battle. I'm going to make myself comfortable. So he stays in Jerusalem when the armies of God are fighting. And you know the story. You may know the story. If you don't know the story, it's a pretty interesting story. He's walking on his roof. There's a lady on, living on her roof over there, and this was a common thing. She was bathing. He said, who is that? And he finds out, oh, that's Uriah the Hittite's wife. Oh, Married girl, off limits, not good. And I've got like 45 other wives, okay? Okay, this is David. He's literally at this point got like 17 wives. That's another sermon another day. Some people, the Bible, huh? Interesting. Okay, so um, some people can start reading the Bible this week. All right, so, so, so he sees that, and of course he asks about her, and then he invites her over, and then he, he sleeps with her, and she conceives and gets pregnant and says, oh, this is going to be a scandal. Because now he's abusing his position, abusing his power, he, he's, 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 he's gone from a person who loves God and serves others to a person who's all about himself. And, and, and it's, it just gets worse, right? He calls Uriah home. He tries to get Uriah to go home and spend time with his wife and sleep with his wife. He tries to do this manipulative, horrible thing where he gets Uriah drunk. He gives him gifts. He, he seems like he's being nice. He's creating a narrative that he's nice. But at the end of the day, what's really going on is a creepy, manipulative, abusing of his power and his position person where ultimately Uriah says, you know, I'm not going to do this. I should be out fighting with God's people. He has the right attitude. And, and, and there's nothing that'll make a person with the wrong attitude mad than dealing with someone with the right attitude. A character convicts uh, in a horrible way. And, and so David uh, justifies, he sends a letter to the general Joab. And he says, here's the deal. Put this guy Uriah in the hottest part of the battle. And then when the battle gets bad, pull back and make sure he dies. Okay, and then, of course, this happens, and David, and one of the things you're going to notice about David all the way through is he gets angry. Anger starts defining David, okay? Uh, you should pay attention to your anger. Okay? It's an indication you're, you're not in a good place, okay? And, and so, and so um, um, this happens, and, and it says, you know, David then took this woman and made her another wife, and the baby was born, and that passage ends with a simple statement, but the thing the Lord did displeased the Lord, and that's where we take up the story today. And so this is what happens. What we're going to see is the power of confronting narratives and appealing to the better nature. Now, this is one of the key things about the confrontation that God wants to bring in our lives. It is not shame-based. It's not the kind of thing, you're bad, you're terrible, you're horrible. It's, it's this. It said, you're better than this. You were created for more. Let me give you a vision of what you would be like if you were not doing this. And so the heart of this confrontation that's going to come to David, 
when he is steeped in his certainty and his false narratives. And remember, if you go back and read the story, he's constantly projecting this thing of being the wise, good king. You know, and everybody in the kingdom now knows what happened. They're all like rolling their eyes at this point. And, and, and the confrontation is about calling him back to his better nature. Watch this. And the Lord sent Nathan to David and he came to him and he said, there were two men. Let me tell you a parable. Remember parables? You know, the whole idea that God tells stories to get around our certainty, to knock us off the narratives that we've told ourselves. There were two men. You know, there were parables in the Old Testament. There were two men in a certain city, one rich and the other poor. The rich man had very many flocks and herds. He had so much, okay? But he was entitled. But the poor man had nothing but one little ewe lamb, which he had brought, bought. And he bought it, brought it up and grew up with it and with his children. So he has this one little lamb, and it's like a pet. It's beloved of, 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 of this family. Now watch this. It used to eat from uh, his morsels and drink his cup and lie in his arms. And it was like a daughter to him. Now there came a traveler to the rich man. And he was unwilling to take one of his own flock. He was unwilling to take one of his own flock or herd to prepare to the, for the guest who had come to him. But he took the poor man's lamb and prepared it for the man who had come to him. So this guy's got a bunch, takes for, from just the guy who doesn't have anything. And, and this is just a horrible statement. Now look at David's response. You're going to see anger again. Okay, and go back, read this story. You're going to see anger. And you know who's, who, who, who's David anger reminds us of? It reminds us of the king before this, Saul, who was, deter was constantly getting angry, totally losing control and anger. He learned it as, as a child with Saul and his father. And, 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 and it was because Saul was afraid all the time. So, so this anger that keeps flashing up in the story in David, which is not usually around David, is here. Then David's anger was greatly kindled against the man. And he said to Nathan, as the Lord lives, the man who has done this deserves to die. And he shall restore to the lamb fourfold because he did this thing and because he had no pity. And so David, some of the best parts of David came in, protecting the people, bringing forth justice, advocating for the poor, standing up for what's right. And so this is the better nature of, of David. And so in David's mind, sitting on the throne, the narrative is, I am the hero bringing justice. He's about to find out he's the villain, he's the dragon. That he has drifted so far from God that God is going to confront him in a big way. Now look at this next thing. Nathan said to David, you are the man. That's confrontation. That's the power of God. And again, if God wanted to point something out in your life, is there anybody you could send? Is there anything from the word of God? Or do you establish a narrative? Have you established a deep understanding, a thing that you're just refusing to look at because it would just destroy the image that you've set up? Well, God wants to come to us in those times when we are not our best versions of ourselves, when we are invested in brokenness, and he wants to say, you are the man. Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I anointed you king over Israel, and I delivered you out of the hands of Saul. He reminds him, listen now, of salvation. He said, remember when you were nothing, David? You were just a shepherd, and then you, you fought Goliath, and I saved you that day. Remember when Saul was chasing you? And Saul chased him for 10 years. David went through a lot of trauma, and many times not dealing with our trauma is, is, is the place where a dragon can come up. We're going to be doing some teaching on that next year. 
But, but, but here's the deal. This, this thing of, 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 of salvation is that, that, David, I delivered you. I saved you. And, and one of the things that God will always come back to when he's confronting us is, do you remember the cross? Do you remember when you were without God, without hope? You were far from God? Remember when you were unforgiven and you were lost, and I sent my son, I, he just reminds us of salvation. And, and then he goes from there. And I gave you your master's house and your master's wives into your arms and gave you the house of Israel and Judah and th- as if this were too little. And so, so two things going on there. He says, you know, David, you've been saying, I won this and I took the kingdom and I'm in charge and I did this and I have earned this. this. And, and he confronts the entitlement. He said, you didn't do that. You have exaggerated your contribution and you're ignoring the grace and the mercy that everything you have came from God, not for your personal blessing, but that you might be a blessing to others. I made you a king not to be served, but to serve. And so he confronts him again and he says, and as if this were too little, because David basically has been saying, you didn't give me enough, God. You gave me all these wives, but I wanted that thing. And that's what coveting does. It it pulls us off the blessing of what we have, and it puts us focused on that which we cannot have. And and, and it's a terrible, horrible thing. There's a reason. Listen now, one of the Ten Commandments we're about to look at next week, one of the Ten Commandments is don't covet. Don't let it in your heart. Because it is a toxic poison to your soul, to your relationships. And this is what's going on in David. He said, I would, and to understand, I would give you more. I would give you things that are more satisfying, more complete. But, but you're acting like I'm giving you too little. Like I'm stingy. Because I'm trying to take away things that are toxic and poison in your life. So that I can give you things that would really give you life and health and peace. This is an issue of, of, of mercy. Why have you despised the word of the Lord? And we despise the word of the Lord. You know how we despise it? We read it and we ignore it. We read it superficially. We don't read it at all. We claim to believe this is God's word and God's message to us. We don't make any room for it in our life. We don't have inner life. And, and, and that, we have despised the word of the Lord. To, I was about to preach. To do what is evil in his sight. And, 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 and it's amazing. So many people say, boy, that David, he messed up. I could never imagine doing anything like that. Well, if you don't understand that but for the grace of God, there go you, well, then you're, 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 you're vulnerable, and honestly, you're a little dangerous. Because when our monsters come out, it doesn't just mess us up. I mean, this messed up the kingdom. We don't have time to look at it, but the consequences of David's actions go generations. And so, so, so this is why it's important that we come to terms with our monsters. You have struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword. Not you had him killed. You did it. You did it with the sword um, um, and have taken his wife, not your wife, his wife, to be your wife and killed him with the sword of the Amorites. And, and you know, again, you know where he learned that trick? This is the same way Saul tried to kill him. When he was running for his life, he put him in thick battle and then abandoned him. David survived. And David used that same despicable evil. He becomes a tyrant. And, and if you don't understand that when you're not okay and you're not managing not being okay, you're not aware of that, you're not letting God confront you, you can go further than you ever dreamed you would go. And, and, and it's a scary thing. And, and it should be sobering power of confrontation. And this is where we get to David's response. And this is what we're calling you to. This thing of confession. Confession is the ancient practice that used to be part of a Christian's life every day. 
It used to be part of worship services every week. People used to make it just a regular practice to understand that regularly and routinely I need to go before God in confession. Now, if you're like me and you grew up in a Catholic church, confession was a big deal. You'd go in, you'd think of the bad things you did, and you'd sit behind the screen and the priest and the forgiveness. And, and that, that's not what I'm talking about. Okay? Or, or maybe you grew up in another tradition where every week you'd pray a prayer where you confessed and you didn't really think about that much, but you just said things. When I'm talking about something different, here's the misunderstanding about confession. This is going to sound wrong, but it's not. It's right. All right, so here's the deal. The emails are going to fly in. All right, so here's the deal. (laughs) Confession for a Christian is not fundamentally about forgiveness of sin. Because here's the deal. When we accept Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior, he forgives our sins. He forgives our past sins, our present sins, and our future sins. And we are made children of God, and he starts working in us to work out that salvation. He brings us salvation. And so confession now as Christian is not primarily about forgiveness of sins. So why in the world do I need to confess? Because this is what confession does. Confession, listen now, this is so important aligns you with the heart and mind of God. It basically says, God, I've been looking at things like this. I've been acting things. I've been going after this. And you say this, I was wrong. You were right. Your way is right. Your blessings are right. You're good. And you know what? I've been living as though what you said is not right. And now I'm saying what it is right. And and I have not been able to live in the full benefit of your forgiveness and the full benefit of your life and your love because I've been so invested in this my way and my way of thinking. And look what it's done to me. Look what it's made me. And look where it's brought me. And I hate this and I grieve this. And confession feels yucky. It feels hard. But the Bible says there is a godly sorrow that leads to repentance. Did you hear that? A godly sorrow that leads to repentance. I'm not talking about shame that makes you feel sorry for yourself and crawls into a ball. I'm not talking about that. It's just another kind of sin, guys. What I'm talking about is the kind of things that I've learned to hate. My perspective and my way of doing it and my way of following, I just hate it because look what it's done. And and God, I want your way and I want your perspective when you'll be able to confront me. Not only, listen now, does it align you with God, it aligns you with reality, the way things actually are. It blows up your false narratives about how you appear and who you are and your goodness and your entitlement. It just shatters that and it brings you back to the point where you say, man, I am just forgiven by God and loved by God. And I I could not be more fortunate because of that. And and you know what? When I do things God's way, it it, it may take some time and, and it's an investment, but it is the right way. And that is actually reality. See, David was living a lie. He was sitting on the throne like the wise king. And he may have even told himself, boy, everybody's probably pretty impressed with me. Everybody's getting afraid of you, David. Because if he'll do that to them, what will he do to me? He's not safe. That's what makes people like Nathan so heroic. Look what David says. David said to Nathan, look at this. I have sinned against the Lord. He he aligns himself with the perspective of God. And it's amazing to me that we've lost this thing of confession. You bring up confession in theological circles now and people say, oh, that's just the same. That's, that's, you know, you don't understand. It's, it's, it's people, people haven't sinned. They've, they've made mistakes. People haven't sinned. You know, uh, they just had a bad time. And, and, and people haven't sinned. They just have a different perspective. You know, people haven't sinned. They just have their own truth that they're living in. And we live in a day where God doesn't say, hey, make up your truth. He says, I am truth. And when you align yourself with me, listen now, you align yourself with truth. 
That's why confession as a practice where we regularly go through and we ask Holy Spirit, search me, try me, know me. I've been angry today. I've been unforgiving today. I've wanted to hurt that person today. You know what? I've been feeling sorry for me today. You know what? I, I bought things I shouldn't have bought today. I, I, I've been materialistic today. I've been focusing on all kinds of things. I've been listening to every voice but yours, God. God, I was wrong. You were right. God, I've been saying I value and I love your word, and I haven't opened it. I don't know when the last time I opened it. You know, God, I, I say I love you, but I'm looking and asking everybody for answers, looking for everybody to help, but I haven't even asked you about this big thing I'm struggling with. I was wrong. You're right. You know, I, I've been embracing what the world calls truth and the relativism and open things up just, and you know what? They're wrong. I am wrong. That leads to death. That's a wide road. You are right. See, that's what confession does. It's not this horrible thing where you're supposed to beat yourself up and feel terrible. You know, confession is not about wallowing in your sin. It's about leaving your sin behind. So you might embrace life. And so David does this. You want to read the depths of David's, David's beautiful repentance? Read Psalms 51. It's a beautiful psalm where he owns his sin in the first six verses. But then he gets to that beautiful verse where he says, Now that I've owned my sin and have aligned myself with you, create in me a clean heart and renew in me a steadfast spirit that I stand strong. It, it, it moves quickly to worship and praise in the rest of that psalm. That's what true repentance does. And Nathan, uh, Nathan said, um, The Lord has put away your sins. You shall not die. And so salvation comes again, over and over again. And so, so this is the great, the great, great challenge. How are we as followers of Christ going to live, not with the dragon, but with the, the, the reality of aligning ourselves to God? Two questions, and then we're going to pray. Again, is it time to help? What's my pattern? Um, may I ask, are you feeding your monster? Just want to talk about this quickly. All right. What feeds the monster? Let me just do these quickly. Denial. The mom, no such thing as dragons. If you're here and you're thinking for someone else, if you're here and what you're, you're just, you're, you're mad, or maybe you're, you're mad being mad because you're mad at me, but it's really maybe the Holy Spirit you're mad at, pointing out things you don't want to see today, okay? And, and, and you, you're doing sarcasm. Psst, I'm smarter, I'm better than that. That's so old Christianity. Okay, whatever. Denial, okay? Maybe if you, it's blaming. You understand, Paul, I did this thing, but it wasn't my fault. There's my parents, my this, my that. None of that in true, true um, entitlement. You don't understand. I did these things, but because of who I am, the position I had, the price I paid, the, the, the whatever, the wealth I have, the, the whatever it is, it's okay for me to do this. Now, other people shouldn't do it, but I'm okay doing these kinds of things. Entitlement, a horrible, horrible toxic your soul. Ingratitude, you know, and, and that was David. You know, I have all these beautiful wives, all these beautiful wives. Thank you, God. And, and yet, I, I, I want that. The ingratitude of getting us focusing on what God has chosen not to give us. And, and particularly, it bothers us when there's something really good and someone else gets it. That bothers us. That's ingratitude. Uh, we're going to do Thanksgiving in a couple weeks. Isolation. I mean, that, here's the deal. Now, let me just say something to you. If you are a person of influence, power, position, uh, if you have wealth, you have status, the higher you get, the lonelier you become. Because there's not as many people who can come to you. And not as many people who will, 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 will come to you. Because with those things comes a power that becomes very easy to abuse. Rather than using your power to serve others, which is the biblical definition of meekness. We're called to be meek, not weak. 
We have power, but we use it in service of God. It feels gentle, our power, because we use it in that way. When we get up there, we get isolated because, man, we can become a little scary, all right? So busyness, that is to say, you know what? I'm not going to think about it. I'm going to do inner life. I'm going to keep going, working, 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 working. I don't even know what I'm working, but I'm just going to work. I'm not going to slow down. I'm afraid to slow down. Then diversion. Diversion is, you know what? I'm going to watch another show, watch another game, eat another thing, buy another thing, whatever, drink another drink, whatever it is, you know, um, self-neglect. Self-neglect is when we don't pay attention to our own pain. We don't pay attention to what's going on with us. And many times this gets all Christian-y. What I mean by that is this is the person who does everything for everybody else, but they don't take care of themselves. It's, it, psychologists call it codependency. It's not a cool thing. It's actually not love. It feels like love. It disguises itself as love, but it's actually a real deep form of selfishness. How do we tame the monster? Three things. We confess. We just, we just do an inventory and we say, my goodness, I've been angry, I've been this. And listen, <laughs> self-awareness, just becoming aware of the monster is half the battle. Owning it and bringing it to God is the other half. Confession of coming and saying, God, I mean, it's probably 75%. There's another 25% where you gotta start changing patterns. You start thinking differently. You gotta get some people involved. But, but confession is just saying, God, again, your way, I was going my way. I'm aligning myself with your way, your heart, your attitude, your perspective. I was wrong. You were right. And, and just work from the assumption, gang, that regularly and routinely, you were wrong. <laughs> Blinding flash of the obvious, right? Or maybe you're the only one who's not. Maybe you're the, anyway, I can't help that person. All right, so second thing we're going to do is we're going to Sabbath. We're going to create a restful time of healing. We're going to go back in your life. So what's in your life? Go back and listen to everything we've been teaching for the last several months. We're going to take time with God. We're going to take time to be still. We're going to open the word of God. We're going to do the devotions. We've got this week's devotions, by the way. Man, it, it's asking hard questions. It's leading us to this place where we're aware. And then we see, well, this is where this is going to lead. Wow, that is, I'm on the wide road that's leading to destruction. There's a narrow road. Boy, that, that leads to life. I'm getting off this road. I'm going this road because Jesus said this leads to life and he's right and I have been wrong. So Sabbath, the thing is friendship. Now this is really important. Uh, it might be a group, it might be a friend and, and don't go to the friend who's just gonna say, you're not that bad, I've done worse. Those friends are, I guess, those friends sometimes are helpful but, but more often than not, they're trying to make themselves feel better not make you feel better and maybe you don't need to feel better right now. Maybe for a little bit you need to feel worse. There's a godly sorrow that leads to repentance. But you go to someone, I've got friends, so I call and say, what's going on? I've been angry and I'm angry. I don't know why I'm angry. I'm just so angry. You know what? I just, I want to run away right now. You know what? Uh, I looked at something I shouldn't. I'm watching this TV show and it's you know, not technically pornography, but they're doing a good job of coming close. Give myself to look, permission to look at it. You know what? I'm eating too much right now. I'm doing this too much. You know what the Bible says? Listen now, word of God, confess your sins to one another that you might be healed. Did you hear that? When you can find safe, wonderful Christian people you can go to and just say to them in whatever way, I'm not okay. I'm undoing this thing. I'm not proud of it. And I, I, I just didn't want to tell anybody about it, but I need to tell you. And, and my best, my friend's good. Okay, you got a plan? Yep, I'm going to do this. Yep, how can I help? I love you. Jesus loves you. It's going to be okay. 
Okay. And, and you know what? Sometimes it does too. And I've got, I've got a board of overseers who do this. Uh, and they ask horrible impersonal questions. Those guys are always meddling in my life in the best possible way. If I'm tempted to do something, I know I'm going to get asked. And, and I, I've said to myself, I could probably lie, but I don't think I could live with the lie. You know what? It'd just be easier not to do the thing. <laughs> it's a glorious perspective. Friendship, accountability, true people who love you enough to confront you with the truth in the most beautiful way. And, and these are the beautiful steps. Let me challenge you with some next steps. Next steps are you're going to pick up the devotion. You're going to do this work. And, 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 and we're going to end together um, with with communion. So if you've got your communion um, um, elements with you, I just encourage you to go ahead and um, um, take a look at this. We're going to come to communion in a spirit of confession. At the heart of communion, by the way, is confession. The Bible has a very strong warning that we should not take this in an unworthy way, a way that's superficial, that we would take the Lord's name in emptiness or in vain, where you'd say, I'm just going to go through the motions of doing communion. But what communion is, it's, it's first and foremost, just like David and Nathan, a reminder of salvation. That Jesus really lived. He really died. He died for you. He divide, died for you, not only just to save you from your past sins, but to help you live beyond your sins into a glorious future where sin doesn't even touch you anymore. And so sin should have nothing to do with you anymore. And so it's a reminder. And so, so, so it reminds us of salvation. And then it calls us to examine ourselves and say, okay, wow, have I got a monster rolling? If I got a monster growling is about to come out, or, or, or am I just at a point where I'm just hurt? I'm hungry, angry, lonely, tired. I, I, I just, I've got some work to do. If I got an inner life right now. And so, so this is just an opportunity for us um, to invite the Holy Spirit to do some confrontation. So I'm just going to encourage you um, to close your eyes. I do want to let you know that as we get ready to do this here at Jacob's Well, we invite everyone who is a follower of Jesus to take communion. We don't believe anything magical or mystical happens to these elements. We actually believe the important thing is that Jesus Christ, 2,000 years ago, lived, died, rose from the dead. And if you put your faith and trust in that for salvation, then we're brothers and sisters and we welcome you to communion. This is a remembrance of that. It is realigning us with... <laughs> off of our, our perspective back to Jesus' perspective. This is the most important thing. It's a reminder of the most important thing that ever happened. And so let's just take a minute to close our eyes, take a deep breath. And Holy Spirit, we invite you to come to us. Search us and try us, test us. See if there are any ways that would lead to unrighteousness. And Holy Spirit, you who are here dealing with each one of us as though we're the only one here, you are speaking to the people who are listening online. You're speaking to people in the theater. Jesus, we would just ask that you would reveal to us any narratives that we have been telling, stories we've been trying to defend, actions we've been trying to justify. Lord, have mercy. And Lord Jesus, we would just ask, are we carrying anger? or shame, or, or are we isolating ourselves? Are we steeped in, in materialism or in immorality? Have we begun to start defining truth by the world and not by you? Lord, have mercy. Lord Jesus, have we been treating people the way your son treated people, saying, Father, forgive them, they don't know what they do, turning the other cheek, keeping no record of wrongs, bearing one another's burdens? Lord, have mercy. 
Lord Jesus, have we been indifferent to the poor and those who seek need justice, demanding our rights above anybody else's in such a way that, that we've dishonored you? Lord, have mercy. Lord, have we been harsh? Are there broken relationships? Are there issues of unforgiveness in our lives? Grieve our spirits about that. Bring a godly sorrow that would lead to a change of mind of repentance, that would lead to a change of action. Lord, have mercy. Fathers, we remember your sacrifice on the cross. We acknowledge our sins. We pour contempt on our sins. We pour contempt on our pride. We ask your forgiveness. Oh, Lord Jesus, Heavenly Father, we confess to you and to all our brothers and sisters that we have sinned in thought and word and deed and what we have done and the things we have left undone. For the sake of your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, forgive us our sins and cleanse us from that unrighteous behavior that we would walk in newness of life. And on the night before Jesus died, he took the bread and he said to his disciples, this is my body. He broke it and gave it to them and he said, do this in remembrance of me. After the supper, he took the cup. The cup is fundamentally a question of relationship. It is the blood of the new covenant relationship. And it's basically God saying, I have opened up the door for you to be known and for you to be loved, for you to be accepted by me. And so Jesus took the cup and he gave it to them. And he said, this is the blood of the new and the everlasting covenant. Let's pray. Holy Spirit, search us in how we have been doing covenant relationships. Have we been living in a love relationship with you? Have we taken time for you in your word? Have we lifted things up in prayer? Are you the source of our comfort, our strength? Or have we looked to other things? Have we been more concerned with our relationship with things and with media and with just a person perhaps than we have in our relationship with you? Lord Jesus, we would ask that you would search again our relationships. How have we treated people? Have we done to others as we would have them do to you? is our standard, the ethic, and the example of Jesus. And so we'd ask you, Holy Spirit, to search us now. And once again, Heavenly Father, we confess to you and to all our brothers and sisters in Christ that we have sinned in thought and word and deed and what we have done and what we have left undone. For the sake of your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, we ask you to forgive us our sins, cleanse us, for unrighteous, cleanse us from unrighteousness, and to help us to walk in newness of life. Jesus took the cup and he gave it to them. And he said, this is the blood of the new and everlasting covenant. Do this in remembrance of me. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, repentance brings joy. And although we have tasted the sorrow of acknowledging our sin, our selfishness and our smallness, where we have shined light on monsters in our life, we know that the moment we run to you, you say we shall not die, we shall be forgiven. And so Lord Jesus, Lord Jesus, we just rejoice in the salvation that you have given us. You have promised that whoever calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. You have said that we have become now no longer strangers, but friends. You have said that to those who believe, we become sons and daughters of God. This week, help us to renew our commitment to live in a love relationship with you, that changes the way we treat one another and how we live. We pray, Father, just 
Teach us to be people who confess, not a guilt-ridden shame pouring on contempt for ourselves, but hating our sin in such a way that we reject it and align ourselves with you and the truth of God. Give us this gift and this mercy. We thank you for you are good. And it's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.